Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. So welcome back for part two of our coverage of the abduction of Daniel Morcombe. So Daniel was abducted while waiting for the bus in December of 2003 in Queensland, Australia. So last episode, we left off with the surprising capture of Daniel's abductor and murderer, Brett Peter Cowan. Um, So this episode, we're going to break down how the task force discovered who the killer was. But first, we're going to learn a little bit about who Brett Cowan is. And uh, it, it ain't good. Right. Yeah. He's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. So Cowan was born on, dis- on September 18th, 1969 in Bunbury, Western Australia. His mother, Marlene, was a homemaker. And his father, Peter, was an Australian Army veteran who'd served in the Vietnam War. So his parents had had four boys, of which Brett was the third. Unfortunately, due to his military service, Brett's father was rarely home and also suffered pretty severely from PTSD, which obviously is to be expected. Vietnam was not great. Right. When Brett was only one year old in 1970, the family relocated to Brisbane, Queensland, in the suburb of Everton Park. So the Cowans were actually devoutly Catholic, and they sent all four of their children to an independent Catholic high school called Mount Maria College. So I found it interesting because Cowan was actually raised devoutly Catholic, and so was his victim, Daniel. Wow, okay. So that's an interesting kind of parallel there. Yeah. During high school, Brett was severely bullied by his peers, but according to his freshman English teacher... That was for good reason, which I rarely say about bullying, but I think when you guys hear this, you'll understand why. Brett was constantly taunting his peers and would produce erections in class and proudly show them to his classmates. So he wouldn't, from what I read, he wouldn't take them out of his pants. It was more like he would get a boner in his pants and like show the tent. He would pitch a tent. Pitch in a tent. There you go. Pitch in a tent. He would just walk around class and be like, look at this. Okay. So you can already tell that something's not right upstairs. Yeah, there's definitely a twisted wire or two. Well, it makes you wonder, did he just think his classmates were going to be like, yeah, man, that's so cool. That's rad. Let's be friends. Love love your erection. That's was impressive. It like, was it eight feet long? Like, I mean, was it Guinness I mean, World Records or? I highly doubt it. Yeah, I'm just saying. According to his teacher, this behavior obviously led to him being, quote, despised by his peers. Shocker. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> if if I had a classmate who was walking around showing me his junk all day, I'd be like, get the fuck away from me, man. Yeah. Ain't nobody want to see your shit. Especially not other guys. I mean, well, unless. Some guys, you know, they might be into it. But regardless, this I don't. This guy, this guy, I don't want to see nobody's junk. Just... Yeah. I, well, and yeah. As, a, as a woman, I, trust me, I'm I'm pretty straight. But also, I don't want to see your junk either unless I ask you. So yeah, please, yeah, don't, please don't show it to me unless unless I tell you I want to see it, which is very like, rare. I was going to say, like, like, I don't understand that whole, you know, that, that not to go off on 
a little sidebar here, but the whole idea of penis pictures or dick pics, like. You mean like when people are like sexting? Yeah. Like, well, no, no, no. If, if you're with somebody and like you, like they, you know, you're doing it. Okay. That's fine. But when guys just randomly send. Oh, women, you're talking about unsolicited dick pics. Yeah. Like. It's horrible. It's horrible. Like, I hate, like, I don't, I mean, I'm sure, I, I guess it's happened to you. Oh yeah, it's the worst. Okay. You you'll you'll barely talk. First of all, I've never done the online dating thing. Like I've never done Tinder or, or met anybody is on there. When it, is that when it really like mostly happens? I think like, it's. I don't know. I just from my friends and trust me, my friends have showed me a thing or two about a thing or two, and right. it's actually scary how often it happens on dating sites. Yeah, they'll yeah. they'll just send it to you completely unsolicited, as if as a woman you're going to be like, damn that makes me want a hot dog real bad. You know, it's like, no. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't understand that that whole, but, you know, hey, different strokes for different folks, but. Well, and I feel like the whole exhibitionist thing is kind of a, a sign that something's not right. You know, you, you hear that a lot with rapists and stuff, that they start out by flashing people or, you know, it's yeah. like some weird thing they get off of, of, like, surprising people with their dick. Right, yeah, I, yeah, I don't get it, like. If you're in a relationship and you're like showing each other pictures because you're not together or something. Well, but that's also consensual. You know, I'm asking to see it. But if if I just met you, don't don't text me a picture of that. I trust me. I don't want to see it. Swiping, right? Because it's like swipe. Some of those. Yeah. You just swipe. I think they all are pretty swipey now. I think they all swipe. And then all of a sudden and you're, it's, I guess, sliding into your DMs or whatever. I direct message or whatever. It's like. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden you get this picture of a. And I'm sorry, they're not pretty. There. No, and here's the thing. I'll let you know if I want to see it. And majority of the time, I do not. I agree. He was doing all of this in ninth grade, the whole showing off his pitch tent. In when tent- he was that? What, do we know when he was born? Like, was, um, he was born in he was born in '69. So in in ninth, how old when he did it? He was only fourteen because he was in a freshman in high school. So like '83. Yeah, he was go- walking around showing people his pitch tent. Nobody did that back then. Well, that's probably why his peers, quote unquote, despised him. You're not wrong when you're right. You're not wrong when you're right. So in 10th grade, Cowan dropped out of high school completely. Not surprising. Shocker. Already a loser from day one. He began working odd jobs in order to make ends meet. It was difficult for him to hold down any job for longer than a few months, which is also another red flag. Probably because he was walking around with a boner in his pants all the time. Yeah, and I'm sure his coworkers were like, get that fucking shit out of here. This is a public place, brother. Get that corn out of my face. (laughs) (laughs) So his mother was obviously growing tired of his behavior. I would, too. She claimed that he was, quote, a handful as a child, and it just grew worse as, as he got into his teenage years. He would even steal from the family. He would just go into people's purses and wallets and steal shit. Yeah, he's definitely a piece of shit. Yeah. Not that stealing is ever right, whether it's a stranger or not, but I feel like it's a whole other level of depravity to steal from your friends and family. If you're starving and you try to steal food, you're fine. Right. Stealing from your family, fuck off. Mm Mm-hmm. Or you're stealing from anybody, fuck off. Get a job, work, and earn your own shit. Like Right. I hate that shit. Like you said, I understand if you're in a place where you're desperate to live and you're stealing, I get it. But... If you're just stealing to steal because you don't want to earn it yourself, fuck you. Right. I got my house burglarized once and nothing was so horrible 
Well, and the thing that sucked is I didn't even care about the stupid shit, like electronics, replaceable things. I was like, whatever. I have homeowner's insurance. It's going to be fine. But the thing that really sucks is I had, you know, heirloom jewelry stuff that was given to me as gifts that I'm never going to get back, you know? So sorry, sorry, tangent, rabbit hole, whatever. That was a rabbit hole, but I feel like it was it was a good one. It was a good one. It was. So in tenth grade, like I said, Cowan drops out of high school. Okay. The other interesting thing is during his teenage years, Cowan discovers that he's bisexual. So this part I kind of under don't get me wrong, he's a piece of shit, but I understand how he kind of struggled to accept that at that point in time because obviously being okay. Any sort of queer back then was not good. Agreed. 100%. By the age of 17, Cowan had also began involving himself in criminal activity and drug use. All downhill. From the time he was born, it was just a steep downhill. He claims now that he was a regular user of LSD, cocaine, and methamphetamines. All by the, All by the age of 17. He later P-O-S, sorry, P-O-S, piece of shit. Well, and the thing that's, don't get me wrong, I think it's, you know, horrible if, if he really truly had a drug addiction, but he later claims of the drugs that basically that was the reason why he goes on to do all these crimes because it, it fucked with his brain chemistry, which I call bullshit on because for sure 100 because how how many drug addicts are out there who are severe severe drug addicts and they don't go on to rape people or commit these crazy crimes yeah i know so he later claimed of the drugs quote they do fuck your inhibitions up you know your boundaries i'm not buying what you're laying down there uh sport you know i'm gonna agree to him to the point that yes if you do drugs and alcohol it could Blur your boundaries, but not to that extent. I'm sorry. I love to drink. I, I wouldn't say I'm an alcoholic by any means, but I, I enjoy imbibing every once in a while. But I don't get drunk and go out and steal from people or rape people or do any other number of things. So, sorry. Right. Right. Agreed. So. Yeah, bullshit. By the age of 18, Cowan had already been in trouble with the law several times related to his petty thefts and drug use. Due to these offenses, Cowan was required to perform community service at a park in Brisbane. On December 5th, 1987, while at the park, so he's 18 years old at this point, Cowan abducts a young seven-year-old boy named Tim Nichols who was at the park. He was involved in a kind of a summer camp at the park. Right. And he forced Tim Nichols into the bathroom where he raped him repeatedly. Following the rape, Cowan casually returned to the child care center where he'd been assigned to perform maintenance duties, and he just proceeded to watch TV as if nothing had happened. Yeah, we had this discussion last time, and it's not setting any better with me now. He's disgusting. Also, I wanted to point out, Tim Nichols, the reason why I'm saying his name on here, because normally I don't really give the name of child victims, but Tim Nichols actually later, uh, as an adult, came out and did interviews about his experience. So, Bless him. So that's why we're talking, you know, about him and, and naming him. Good. And I support him. And God bless him, that boy. Yeah. He was involved in the um, uh, documentary series about this. And oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. The Dateline. And he, he's a strong guy. He's they a... 10 or 60 Minutes Australia. I'm sorry. 60 Minutes. Yeah. Okay. Cowan was eventually caught for this rape. 
And because it's interesting, this is another point where Tim Nichols is a strong kid because he he says in his interview that Cowan, which as a seven year old, I'm sure is terrifying for a, a, a number a number of reasons, but also Cowan told him basically the only reason the rape stopped is because one of the counselors who obviously had no idea what was going on, but was looking for Tim and just thought, oh, he's, you know, in the bathroom. I guess she knocked on the door and, and was like, Tim, are you in there? And that's why the attack stopped, because a counselor was outside. Unreal. Wow. But Tim came out and said that had that counselor not interrupted it, he fully believes that he would have murdered him. Would have killed him. Yep. I agree with that. But Responsibility. Cowan also told him, if you tell anyone, I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you and I'm going to kill your family. So. It's pretty amazing that at seven years old, he still even came out and no, told. told, yeah. God bless him. That's why I said, God bless him. I support him 100% and, yeah. But, you know. He's a strong, kid. he's a strong man. Yeah. For sure. Because now, obviously, yeah. now he's yeah, an adult. He's man but, now, yeah. So, Cowan was eventually caught, but he ran from police for two years. So he was finally caught and brought back to Queensland two years later for trial. And there, Tim, so by this point, Tim is nine years old. Okay. It's, it's two years later. Two years, right, okay. Tim bravely testified against Cowan, and which is crazy to think that a nine-year-old went and did that. Cowan was sentenced to serve only two years in prison for the rape, but only actually served one year. So he only served one year for that violent rape. Yeah, so two two things. One, it's astonishing to me, or I would say, making a nine-year-old testify as opposed to taking his testimony on video or something and then playing it. Is like, that yeah. is that normally what occurs nowadays? Because yeah, this yeah, is back yeah. in the 80s, but... Yes, I know. It, I, again, different time and uh, different country. and every, But yes, if you're a minor, you, they record, like especially like children, they have, you know, their special rules and procedures and everything and, and, and safe locations and the proper counselors and stuff where they elicit that information. They, you know, they secure the information to proceed with the arrest and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, because it has to be reached. And he talks about this in, in and his that's interview. that's it. Like, well, he talks about in his interview how re-traumatizing it was to have to see him again in, in court. So I thought the same all thing. All that when, fear, all that, all those memories, all everything, every second. That boy, man, was with that fucking piece of shit. Was the band-aid was ripped again and congratulations, relive it. Yeah, and I Fuck thought that. that was fucked up. When he was telling his story, I was I was thinking to myself, why did they make him do that? There has to have been another way. And you're right. Why not just film him and play it in court and he doesn't have uh, to Of course we're talking you said it was the eighties, so Yeah, early yeah. So maybe, you know Well late eighties, yes. 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 Late 80s. I mean, yes, there's film and stuff like that. Maybe it wasn't, you know, who, who knows what, what the reason was, but sad that he had to go through that. And the fact that he got only sentenced to two years, but only had to serve, what did you say, one? One. One and a half? One. One. Twelve to, months. That's that's a judicial system or a justice system that absolutely failed. Yeah, that's 100%. a travesty. I'm sorry. You have a, yes, okay, he's 18. All right, but that's an adult. Right. And he rapes multiple repeatedly. Repeatedly a seven year old. You're gonna give him a year? Or is he gonna well, serve a year? And the sad part of this is, which we'll come to find out, is that this isn't the only time this occurred. 
And had he been held at this point in his first his first offense, or at least the first offense he was caught on, who knows if he did it previously and no one knows about it. But if he if right. if he had been caught and held then, none of mm-hmm. none of what happened later would have happened. Yeah, see, I'm going to prison. If that happens to any of my children, I would I'm going to prison. I don't know how I honestly I as a mother I would never be able to look at that person without ripping them limb from limb. Yeah, no, no. I'm, maybe I and get lucky and I can escape and go hide somewhere and but somehow I'm in that fucker's life. He's not drawing breath anymore. It's just so. crazy to me that it's so brave that a 9-year-old faced him in court yep, and did agreed. everything he did. But the fact that the court and the the system failed him? Yeah, even like after how brave after, he was. Yeah, that's Horrible. So Tim recalled what it was like to testify at the age of nine, saying, quote, I had to look at him. It was hard. I had to point to him, to the person who attacked me. And he was sitting there with a smile on his face, just staring at me. I still remember that. It was like a game to him. So the fact that this kid had to sit there while this guy laughed at him, it just makes my blood boil. Yeah. And and I'm going to tell you as a parent, like if I'm that boy's father, and I'm looking at that guy and he's smiling while my son's, you know, going through what he's going through. There's going to be a hurricane across that. I promise you it's going to be a tornado Wait, you're across. A, you're a big guy. It'd be hard to pull the U off them. Me, I'm, I'm smaller, but. Good luck. I promise you they, I'm going to get to them. They might get me off of them. I'm going to get to them. It's crazy. So, sorry. I'm not, I'm nothing special, but I promise you something like that. I, 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 I can't even. I don't even have to think it. about it because, I, yeah, it's it's uncomprehensible to me, and yet it happens all the fucking time. Yeah, and and we're no we're no different in the U.S. No, I, no. The, the sentences here are just as abysmal sometimes. Trust me, I deal with it all the time. So, not surprisingly, after that horrible sentence, Cowan gets out of prison and rapes yet another boy in September of 1993. So right after he gets out of prison, he does it again. See, like, see, that's that's where the system fails, unfortunately. So during this time, he'd been living with his girlfriend in a caravan park. So I thought that that was funny. They call it a caravan park over there, which we just call oh. kind of, kind of what do you call it, like an RV park? RV park, yeah, like a yeah. campground or whatever. Yeah. Wait, what is RV even? Recreational vehicle. Recreational right? vehicle, yeah, yeah. This is a big, you know, like the camp, the, the yeah, like a camper. Of, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So while there, he came across a six-year-old boy, so a year younger this time. So he, the six-year-old boy was living two caravans down from him, and he lured this boy to a, a, an abandoned car yard, which was adjacent to the caravan park. There, he severely raped and beat this boy and left him for dead in one of the abandoned cars. So the beating had been so severe that the boy's lung had been punctured. He suffered severe cuts a broken collarbone, and his eyes were so severely hemorrhaged that they were completely covered in blood because he'd been smothered during the attack. The boy managed to... So he he thought he was dead and left him in the vehicle. The boy woke up, managed to stumble into a nearby gas station where employees immediately called the police. Initially, due to the severity of the boy's injuries, all the people in this gas station, they, when they called police, they reported it as a hit and run because his injuries were so severe that they thought he'd been hit by a car. Wow. 
However, it soon became apparent once he got to the hospital and he was examined that he had been attacked and raped. Right. So, of course, the police questioned everyone in the caravan park. Initially, Cowan denied any involvement, and he even told investigators, quote, I hope you catch the bastard. Okay. Horrible. He's such a piece of shit. It's, like, unbelievable. (sighs) Okay. Investigators found the boy's discarded underwear near the car where he'd been abandoned, and they determined through semen found on the underwear that Cowan was the rapist and arrested him. So how they caught him, which is kind of interesting, is they went around the caravan park once they knew they had DNA evidence, and they asked that people volunteer the DNA. So interestingly, every single, every single male in the entire caravan park agreed to it, except for Cowan, which is how... Shocker. Which is how they knew it was him. Right. So eventually, once he was arrested, he confessed. And this time, he was sentenced to three and a half years in prison in 1994. So still only three and a half years. See, right right then and there, okay, right? I'm going to, this is my opinion. This is what I think should have happened or should happen to this day. You have the person's semen. You match it by DNA. Yeah, there's no questioning his guilt. Indisputable. You get the guy and he says, yes, I did it. Bullet to the head. Yeah. I think no torture. No, everybody wants to, oh, he should get what he, no, just he doesn't deserve to draw air. That's it. Well, and I feel like that get should be, because don't get me wrong, of course, we have to take into account that there are people who are wrongly accused. 100%. And we talked but, about that the last time. 100%. But like, in cases like this where it's indisputable, if, and I'm talking not just against kids, no. I think if you're a rapist, whether it's against yeah. women, adults, whatever. I said it you, before. If you kill, you, you them, should have. Life. You should go to death row. If you take a life, you forfeit your life. If you rape a woman or rape a child, you have altered their life or taken their normal course of life away. Forfeit yours. And once it's confirmed through DNA and it's and it's one hundred percent concrete, and we know, boom, it can't be anybody else. And don't torture them. They don't need to be. Just get rid of them. I agree that the punishments should be extremely more severe than it is today. Okay. Because they're animals. They can't be rehabilitated. And if anybody's listening who's related to somebody or believes in re I'm sorry, it does not work when it comes to these type of people. Well, I think, yes, I think that rehabilitation can work it, for, for, sure. for certain offenses, yes. Certain things. Absolutely. But when it comes when, to sexual predators... Line, yeah. When you cross yeah. the line to take a life or you cross the line to... You're a sexual predator, whether whether it's towards adult women, adult men, children. That's it. That's it. You. I'm sorry. You. You forfeit your life. I'm sorry. Yeah. You don't deserve no, all I agree. the same air that I have to breathe. I'm sorry. I don't think you should ever. At the very least, you should never get out of prison ever. We we shouldn't even have to spend the money or worry about feeding them. Well, technically, to be fair, technically, it's more expensive to uh, kill prisoners than to house them. But still. Well, the system has to be revamped. I'm not saying there isn't flaws. But I promise you. No, I agree. I agree with you in terms of that. You know, it's not about torturing the person. It's not about that. It's about just get out. You don't deserve to be here. You you. He just doesn't deserve to draw air. Your victim doesn't. Whether you killed the person or raped them. They are no longer the same. They are no longer the same life. Right. 
period. You forfeit yours. That's it. I agree. Not torturing you. I'm not, not... going to tie you up to a tree and whip you and no, just we're going to make it quick, whatever. That's it. Yeah. I, I will say that, you know, I, I'm in more of a gray area than you when it comes to the death penalty, but I do agree that in this specific instance, if it's DNA beyond a reasonable doubt that you have done this, then you, no, we, I, I agree with you. Equally the same. You and I are equally the same in that instance, 100%. Because there has been historically people that have been falsely accused or falsely right. convicted and those those need to be looked at. and Which is also a travesty of justice. 100%. I agree with you. However, if we know for sure, and through DNA, because DNA... Doesn't lie. Is, is 100, well, it's 99.9999, whatever, because nothing's 100%, so they say. But that's a good enough percentage for me. Sorry. Yeah. No, I agree. Sorry. Sorry. So, as a part of his sentence, Cowan was made to undergo psychological assessment. The psychologist found Cowan to be, quote, a pathological liar who lived a, quote, parasitic existence because he relied on others to support him financially his entire life up to that point. Okay. Cowan had also told the psychologist that he'd let the boy go because he hadn't believed the boy would report him because he believed the boy had, quote, and this is, quote, verbatim, probably enjoyed it. See, that's, that's just, what's the analogy I want to use? I don't want to say cherry on the sundae or icing on the cake, but that's just an extra level of... Depravity. There you go. That's it. That, that you would ever that. think that at all. What a fucking piece of shit to say. He Oh, he probably enjoyed it. Are you fucking... I can't even. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. We should just move along. So, Cowan was released from prison in 1997 after only serving two and a half years of the three and a half years. Oh, about three and a half years. Okay, great. So, another year off for right. good good behavior. I assume so. I don't. Whatever. Okay. It could be overcrowding. Who knows? So, Sorry, Australia, you need to step up your. Well, so do we. Honestly, both. We do too, but, I mean, come on. At that time, he claimed, this is how he got off, because he claimed to the parole board that he desired to be rehabilitated and no longer wished to be a sexual deviant. So he was ordered by the court to attend a sexual offenders treatment program where he claimed to become a reformed Christian. So he found God. Okay. While attending church, he met a woman named Tracy Lee Moncrief and in 1999, the two wed, and they had two children together. So this child offender has two children, which it's kind of unclear if Tracy was aware of his criminal past or not, because obviously back then it was, you know, it wasn't as easy to just kind of Google the person. So I'm not, I don't want to say, oh, she knew and still married him. I, for all I know, she was completely unawares that he had, you know, this horrible criminal record, but crazy that this piece of shit went on to have two children it happens i i know a couple cases where people have officers have been arrested and they have children like girls and they're committing offenses against women that are horrible horrible so although interestingly so cowan claims he's this reformed christian interestingly i will say 
So he became a Reformed Christian in 1997. So from 97 to 2003, which is when he was attending church regularly, by all accounts, he managed to actually stay out of trouble during that time period. So I'm not going to sit here and say he wasn't committing offenses that he possibly wasn't caught for. But supposedly during that time, he was Mm -hmm. not committing offenses. Okay. I'm going to interject my 27 years of law enforcement experience. He wasn't caught. That's also what I believe. And maybe I'm biased. Maybe I have a skewed view on things, but You're jaded. I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I freely admit it. I'm not scared of being wrong, but bullshit. Well, here's the thing. I think I wouldn't say that I'm overly religious, but I do think that if you're a true believer in that, I think that's great. But I do think that in his case, he's a sociopath. I highly doubt that he really believes there's even a God out there. Like, I think it was all in acts the whole time, you know? Right. Uh, Yeah. Like I'm not, I mean, I'm agnostic as well as you are or somewhat agnostic and, and, and I don't knock religion and if religion works for you, great, but religion doesn't cure that illness. I'm sorry. Agreed. Agreed. Doesn't. Doesn't. So in 2003, Cowan stops attending church. And it was in December of that year that he abducted and murdered Daniel. So interesting that the same year he stops attending church is when all this goes down. So the following year in 2004, which his wife obviously had no idea that he had done anything to Daniel. She wasn't, you know, aware of that. But the following year, 2004, his wife files for divorce. So following their divorce, Cowan made a number of profiles on various gay dating websites And according to these profiles, he was seeking out a number of extreme sex acts. As it turned out, police had actually been on to Cowan since 2006. So when they first interviewed him then about the case after a tip led them to him, but at that time, he admitted to police that he'd traveled along the Keel Mountain Road and that he had passed the bus stop on the day that Daniel disappeared. Okay. And he told police that he had been on his way to purchase marijuana from a drug dealer. However, at that time in 2006, he'd never admitted to stopping or speaking to Daniel in any way. So police, although they suspected that he wasn't telling the whole truth, they had no cause to truly arrest him. Okay, that's, un- I mean, that's understandable. You don't have evidence against them. And-, and they had no physical evidence, no body, no nothing. So what are you really going to do, you know? Right, right. Once the new task force was formed, so remember, this task force was formed in 2011. Right. Investigators had decided to initiate a good old Mr. Big investigation. So (laughs) for those of you who remember that we talked about the Mr. Big investigations in our series on the Highway of Tears. Yep. So it's a Canadian invention, but I guess uh, Australia's adopted it as well. So it works. They initiated this because they wanted to lure Cowan into confessing to Daniel's abduction and murder. So for those of you that don't know, a Mr. Big investigation is actually a police technique where the police create a fictitious criminal organization and they begin building a relationship with the suspect, which could take months to years. And they do this in order to gain their confidence. And then they attempt to lure the suspect into joining this, you know, fake criminal organization. And they tell them that in order to be accepted into the organization or in order to protect them within the organization, they must first divulge information about their criminal history to ensure that they're, 
you know, tough enough to join the enterprise. And also, you know, they don't want to put the enterprise at risk by unresolved criminal activity. These Mr. Big operations, they're usually extremely expensive because obviously it's an undercover investigation that takes months to years. So that's pricey. And also, like I said, it's very, um, it's a long, it's a long uh, process. It's a long process, right? Right. So the task force initiated this operation against Brett Cowan, and it obviously worked. So Cowan had actually been required to testify during that inquest because he had been a person of interest in the case, but the police had spoken to him in 2006. Okay. So upon his entering the courtroom to testify, Denise, Daniel's mother, recalled, quote, as Cowan was walking into the courtroom, I just got a really cold shiver and the whole courtroom just went, oh, my God. And I turned around to Bruce and I went, oh, my God, that's him. And then he was just horrible, just horrible. So the mom knew right away as soon as she saw him, she just got a feeling that that's the guy. Mother's intuition. Right. Yep. So during his questioning... Cowan claimed, and this is fucked up, Just I just included this to show what a piece of shit he is. Cowan claimed he could not have been the one to abduct Daniel because at the time of his abduction, Daniel had been almost 14. And Cowan, and he said this on the stand under oath, that he was only attracted to boys between the ages of 6 and 8. So he, he wouldn't have abducted a 14-year-old. Oh, I forgot about that little part. He said that on the stand in a courtroom. In the stand. Piece of shit. Yep. 100%. So when he left court and got on a flight back to his home in Perth, because at this time he was, he had moved from Queensland to Perth. So he had to okay. fly to Queensland in order to testify and then was flying back to Perth. Right. An undercover officer posed as a member of a crime organization. He was going by the name Joe. He got on the flight to Perth. And he positioned it so that he was sitting right next to Cowan during this time. God bless him. Okay. So Joe claimed he worked for a crime boss named Paul Fitzsimmons, who went by the nickname Fitzy, which I was like, wow, what a what a mafia name. I'll work for old Fitzy. Yeah, that's like a that's like Irish mafia, like the Irish yeah. mob. Fitzy. So over the five hour flight, the two became fast friends and the undercover officer quickly gained Cowan's trust by offering him jobs to make money within this organization. Over the following months, this fictitious gang initiated Cowan through an array of fake criminal activities, which he helped to participate in. Finally, the undercover officer posing as Fitzy, which is the crime boss, asked Cowan about his involvement in Daniel's disappearance, claiming that a corrupt cop who was part of the gang had told him that police were aware of Cowan's involvement in the disappearance and were planning on subpoenaing him. I don't know why I can't say that word, subpoenaing. So Fitzy claimed the gang wanted to protect Cowan from being discovered by police. However, initially to Fitzy, Cowan denied any involvement in the crime. He said he was innocent. Of the stress of being involved in such an undercover operation, Mike Condon, the, the head of homicide, explained, quote, you don't sleep. So for the entirety of this, he said he had trouble sleeping, the entirety of the yeah. investigation. I believe it. But in August of 2011, another undercover officer who went by the name of Arnold invited Cowan to a meeting at the Perth Hyatt Hotel. During this meeting... Cowan was offered a big-time drug-dealing job, which would pay him $100,000. 
This meeting was secretly recorded, and Arnold told Cowan that he, quote, only wanted to help Cowan, and assured him that he needed to disclose what he had done to Daniel so the gang could protect him from investigators, so that he'd be free to pull off this drug-dealing job, which would ultimately make him the 100 grand. Finally, Arnold asked Cowan, quote, so what do I need to fix? And Cowan, after eight long years, finally confessed. He replied, quote, no, yeah, I did it. It is my deepest, darkest secret. I'm not proud of it. He admitted to the officer that he'd driven by the bus stop and had seen Daniel and thought he was, quote, and this is what he said on the recorded tape, quote, a fucking cute little thing. Oh, my God. And that he pulled over and offered Daniel a ride and Daniel had accepted. However, once he'd gotten into the car, instead of taking him to the shopping center, he'd driven him 30 miles south to an abandoned farm. There, Cowan claims he did not actually molest Daniel, but instead panicked and simply murdered him. Following the abduction, Cowan admitted that he realized if he'd released Daniel, he was, quote, fucked. It was at that point that Cowan admitted he'd strangled Daniel to death. He said, quote, I never got to molest him or anything like that. He panicked, and I panicked, and grabbed him around the throat, and before I knew it, he was dead. So he denies that he actually molested him. Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, he's such a fucking lying piece of shit. Yep. So over the next few days, Cowan agreed to lead the undercover officers to Daniel's body under the guise that they want to make sure there is no incriminating evidence left on or near the body. So on August 13th, 2011, nearly eight years after Daniel's murder, Cowan led the officers to Daniel's body, which he'd thrown down an embankment not far from the crime scene and then dragged about 30 yards to a pond of water. It was at this point that police revealed who they really were and arrested Cowan. So even though he'd admit, admitted to killing Daniel, they waited to really reveal themselves until he actually led them to the body. Yeah, you got to confirm, yeah, you got to have concrete evidence. Right. Yep. Which it's good that they do because he later goes on to deny it. So it's good that uh, they did that. Okay. So the arresting officer, Detective Senior Sergeant Steve Blanchfield, recalled Cowan's reaction to finding out he'd been fooled, saying, quote, He was a little stunned for a moment, but not a lot has changed with Mr. Cowan throughout this. He's been very composed and showing very little in way of emotion. So basically, he didn't give a fuck. Sociopath. Of the undercover operation, Bruce, Daniel's dad, said, quote, Absolutely remarkable. Who would have thought that such a wacky, covert operation would work like that? That's the amazing thing. We can't believe how stupid Cowan was. Which, thank God he's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, he is. He just kept his mouth shut, which is why we talked about that last time. He told nobody. Yeah, he even... This time, because I promise you, had he told somebody at the beginning, that $2 million or $1.75 million reward would have been like, that's your guy. You know, Yeah, he goes on in his confession to say that prior to confessing to who he believed was the mob boss, right. he, he had never told a soul about it, which is why none of those tips ever led to anything because... Yeah, and it makes sense. And normally that's not the case. Normally people have, they might be career criminals, whether it's a guilty conscience or just the inability to keep your fucking mouth shut. People talk, even in little doses. So there's generally, that's when the tips usually... You know, you have to go through, a, you know, whatever, 100 tips, 500 tips to get that one. 
But that one person is like, hey, this fucking guy said this to me and, you know. Denise, Daniel's mom, said, quote, those covert operators, we can never say thank you enough to those guys and to the people who set that up as well for what they did. They had to live and breathe with Cowan for months, which she has a good point. Those poor guys having to pretend to like him for any length of time was probably. Ugh. Yep. Following. Well, it's funny Cowan you say that. Uh, I'll bring uh, when we talked about the podcast we did about Jimmy Rice. Yeah. And those detectives had to sit with that guy and, and be nice to him. And that was the tactic they used. They were sympathetic to him and they, and you have to swallow that, that inner desire to, you know, want to like strangle them or rip their, you know, throat out of their body. But you have to befriend them and be nice to them so that they feel comfortable. Like, Hey, this guy doesn't hate me for what I've done. And I can tell him, you know, those people are, they're, they truly are. They're remarkable. They're, they're, that's a special talent and like special people. That... Well, they, they exhibit a lot of self-control, self-control that I do not possess myself. Exactly. Following Cowan's arrest, a team of forensic technicians led by Inspector Artie Van Henhouse arrived on the scene to search for evidence in Daniel's body. However, for three days, the investigators found nothing. On day four, they finally found their first piece of evidence. Inspector Artie explained, quote, day four was both an exciting one for us and a sad one because it was proof to us that we were in the right spot. We had found a globe shoe, which was similar to what Daniel was wearing at the time he disappeared. And a couple days later, we found the left shoe. I was finally optimistic that we were going to find all. So it's amazing that it took them that long to find the evidence, but they stuck with it. Right. Meanwhile, right. police divers were searching a creek a few kilometers away where Cowan had admitted to throwing away Daniel's clothes. Amazingly, after eight years... They found remnants of Daniel's underwear, belt, and shorts, which had all been caught in the roots of a fallen log. So it's kind of amazing had the roots of that tree not been there and, and caught those materials, most likely they would have, you know, drifted away. So right. pretty wild after eight years that those were still there. Yeah, that's like karma. We talked about that before. It was like he was meant to be caught at that time, you know, eight years later or whatever, like unfortunately, but all the evidence was still there that, you know, get the story straight so after another four weeks of searching so they searched for quite a while the investigators finally discovered daniel's body however because of the length of time that had passed since his death only 17 fragments of his body remained a week later the bones were confirmed to be that of daniel morcombe so the family was obviously informed as soon as they found the remains but it took a week to right make sure for a fact it was yeah him. you had to positively identify him Sure. However, when asked if Cowan's confession answered all of his questions about what had occurred to his son, Bruce explained, quote, he is a lying pedophile. You've really got to assess what you can check, what you can verify. But what he actually did, you know, nothing stacks up. Why didn't Daniel have clothes on? I don't understand that. And why wasn't Daniel's belt looped through his pants, you know? Was he bound up with his belt? Really, we don't want to go there. Sometimes it's best we don't know. Agreed. Yeah, agreed as well. I wouldn't want to know. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly, despite all of the evidence against him, Brett Cowan pled not guilty to the murder. And two and a half years later, his trial began. During the trial, Cowan claimed that he had not actually killed Daniel, but had only confessed because he'd been offered such a big sum of money by the undercover officers. 
because remember, they had offered him the $100,000 supposedly for right. a drug deal. For the but, drug deal, right. But my point is, that's a stupid excuse because how did you know where the body was then? Yeah, it's called grasping at straws. Yeah, like, oh, I didn't really do it, but I just happened to know where the body was and guessed correctly. Bullshit. Throughout the trial, 116 witnesses gave evidence and over 200 exhibits were placed into evidence. Following the closing of the prosecution's case, Bruce, Denise, and Daniel's brothers gave very lengthy victim impact statements. Within Bruce's, he stated, quote, It makes me nauseous thinking about your total lack of respect for a child's life. Listening to you describe and watching a smirk grow on your face, how you threw Daniel's lifeless body down an embankment, and a week later you returned and crushed his skull with a shovel. Chop, 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 you coldly explained in an emotionless, matter-of-fact way. We now have to live out our days with the unimaginable images of wild dogs devouring our much-loved son's remains. Daniel did not deserve that. He was a great kid and would not hurt a fly. You have robbed him of 70 years of life. Ultimately, Cowan was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. So we talked about this last time. I think that's, I don't think it's because the judge was being lenient. I think that that has to do with sentencing laws in Australia that she had to give the opportunity of parole. Right. Because when she delivered her sentence, Judge Rosalind Atkinson stated, quote, I don't think you should be released in 20 years. She also called Cowan, quote, a convincing, plausible, and adaptable liar. 100% agreed. Of the verdict, Daniel's mother, Denise, recalled, I muttered under my breath, yes. I wanted to scream out, but I just knew I couldn't do that, but said yes, and I turned around and I saw Bruce's eyes were watering. Dean and Bradley were in tears, and I still can't believe it. We said we'd get justice, and that's what we've got. We'll go and visit Daniel on the weekend and let him know. We made a promise to him, and that's what we've done. We don't break promises, do we? The Morecombs decided not to be present for sentencing, so I, I thought that was really interesting and respectable. They didn't want to give Cowan any more of their time or energy. That's it. Yep. So instead, they chose to go to lunch as a family and celebrate Daniel's life while he was being sentenced. So they didn't find out about the sentencing till after the fact. However, they are happy with the sentence and feel that Cowan will die in jail despite his possibility of parole. One can only hope. Denise stated, quote, and this is pretty savage, I liked this. She said, quote, hopefully he's dead by the time he's 60, so we don't have to worry about the non-parole period. <laughs> God bless. When asked if she could ever forgive Brett Cowan, Denise said, quote, no, I won't forgive Brett Cowan. He destroyed an innocent boy, and he took his life away. No, I'll never forgive him. 100% agreed. I would never either. Nope. When asked the same question, Bruce stated, quote, He's committed the most heinous of crimes. You do not offend against our children. You do not abduct them, and you do not attempt to sexually assault them, and you certainly do not kill them. And then, after all of that, show no remorse. That's why there's no forgiveness, because he's had no remorse to the family. And then I thought this was so um, Australian of him, and he goes, and stuffing. <laughs> when asked what she missed the most about Daniel, his mother Denise said, quote, just being a normal family. He always used to bring me flowers and knickknacks, but he's always going to be that 13-year-old, isn't he? Everyone knows that face. When Daniel's father Bruce was asked the same question, he answered, quote, I think, you know, it's watching him grow up, 
and becoming the man he should have been. Of celebrating their joint birthday alone all of these years, his twin brother Bradley told 60 Minutes, quote, They're always hard. I suppose I've had 10 birthdays now without him. So not that they get any easier, but I remember the first one, 12 days after he disappeared, and that was terrible. Today, Bruce and Denise still run the Daniel Morcombe Foundation and hope to prevent this sort of crime from happening again in Australia. Of the couple, Assistant Commissioner Mike Condon said, quote, it's a revolution that they've started. And it reminds us every day of our responsibility to make sure our children are safe. Daniel's twin brother, Bradley, um, which this is pretty cool. So Daniel's twin brother, Bradley, has gone on to marry, and he had the family's first grandchild, a son, which they named Winston Daniel Morcombe in honor of Daniel. And then Daniel's older brother, Dean, has also gone on to marry, and incredibly, his wife gave birth to their first child, a girl, on October 30th, which is the day that is designated in Queensland as Daniel Day. That's crazy. Yeah, what are the odds that they literally have the baby on Daniel Day? It's, I feel like he was just reaching out from the, you know, the other side being like, that's hey. That's it. That's it. Don't forget. So, yeah, the, the family is doing pretty well considering they still run the Daniel Morcombe Foundation and everyone seems to be living well. Good for them as best as they can, I guess. So that was a horrible case. I think after this one, we've had some tough cases lately. I think we're going to do a fun one next. Yeah. So, something not as uh, a downer. Not so dark, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think we need a little, uh, a, a lighter, a lighter one. We'll get back to them, but yeah, we, that's, I don't know, anytime there's child is the victim is unreal. And in this case, there was multiple children. Right. Multiple child victims, and it was like. Well, and I think the frustrating part about this case is that knowing that there were two other cases before where, where two, this wouldn't right. have occurred if, if he'd two been... could have been preventative. Right. right. If he'd been punished adequately. And so is the problem here in the States as well. Yeah. And so... So we do have a question. This one is for you. Just you. Oh, bop, 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 bop. So this is from Carly. So hi, Carly. Hey, Carly. Thanks for listening and thanks for the question. So she said, Mark, you've mentioned that you will be retiring soon. Do you have any career regrets, things you wish you would have done or accomplished or unsolved cases you wish you, you had been able to solve? Well, I answered this the last time and, and I'll give the same answer because it, it hasn't changed, even though I was able to think about it a little bit. The one, the one thing I... I want to say regret, but the one thing I would do differently if I was to go through this career again is I would try to, I would promote through the ranks and, and, and go up and rank through the department. Currently, I, I still feel this way. I've always been, I would always say that I'm kind of like the guy that ruffles the feathers and the supervisors are there to kind of take the complaints or, you know, smooth the feathers out or whatever. And not that I was a bad, you know, bad cop or anything like that, but I really didn't care what people thought, you know, whether I was doing right or wrong. I knew I was doing right and I was doing, you know, I was, I was doing the best of my abilities and. You were following your own ethical compass. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I followed the training. I followed the rule of law and I, you know, I didn't deviate from that. I never, you know, I didn't falsely arrest people. I didn't abuse anybody, but at the same time, I didn't care what your opinion 
what you thought your opinion was of law enforcement, because unless you're doing this job, you know, you really don't get a say. Like, I can't tell a brain surgeon how to cut open a, you know, a guy's skull. Like, right. you know, so in that sense, that's the one, the one thing I would do. I think I would be a good supervisor and people have told me that I would be just because of the way that, you know, I carried myself and, and policed myself and stuff. But, but as far as any, like, cases I've, I've felt I've done the job, like I made one mistake that I still think about, but I corrected the mistake and I arrested somebody who deserved to be arrested, but I charged him with like the wrong charge, but I ended up going and, and changing it and, and putting the right charge on him. So, you know, I rectified that. But other than that, I'm, I'm pretty proud of my career. Maybe tried to do some different things like go to Warrants Bureau or I, I wanted to do canine for a little while, but once you get in a department and kind of see how things go and, you know, you kind of find your niche and what you want to do. And that th those things never really played out for me. So pretty happy with what I've done. I was, I was a trainer for a very long time. I trained a lot of officers who are still on the job and are, you know, they excel at what they do. And not that I'm taking credit at their accomplishments, but definitely I was part of the process of them becoming who they were. So I'm pretty proud and happy with, you know, with my 27 years and I look forward to the next chapter. So well, on that note, because you will be retiring soon, we I want to do like a special episode that kind of celebrates that. So everybody be on the lookout if you follow us on social media. I, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do yet, but be on the lookout. I may ask for like specific questions or ideas or, or something like that. So yeah, just keep an eye out and we'll we'll try to put something special out because I think it's it'll be a fun episode and just, you know, we got to celebrate your uh, your long I appreciate career. That and yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've mixed emotions. Like, you know, it's, I've been doing this for 27 years. It's what I do, what I know. But at the same time, I know it's time for me to move on and I have to go be with my family and, you know, and, and venture out into other things. So, you know, I have the opportunity to do that. So, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm excited, nervous and excited. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, if you don't follow us on social media... Uh, you should probably add us because it's a lot of fun out there, okay? Yeah, what's wrong with you? Just kidding. So we are on Instagram at Can't Make This Shit Up Pod. We are on Facebook at Can't Make This Shit Up A True Crime Podcast. We're on the, the Twitter at CMTSU Pod. Also, as usual, please send us case suggestions and questions or both. They'll Just be say hi. Yeah, just say hi if you want to shoot us an email and say hey. But you can also submit those. There's a link in the Instagram bio where you can do that, or there'll be a link in the show notes. So, yeah, shoot us a little a little message. And as always, thank you very much for the support. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next week. So another one bites the dust. Another one in the can, so to speak. Again. Again. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
you want to hear the, one of the funniest things that my best friend ever did? We, I'm not going to lie. We did it together pretty much. But Damn, that's so fashion. She had, the, she had this ex-husband who was a complete dick. Horrible. Horrible guy. I already know who you're talking about. You met him. You know he's a piece of shit. I know exactly who you're talking about. So one after they got divorced, we we went online one day and she ordered uh it was a glitter bomb, but it was a bunch of glitter dicks. And we had ah. it sent we had it sent to his house. So he opened that package and literally glitter dicks went everywhere. And I just my only regret about it is I wish we had been able to see the actual it, right. Yeah, like we never got to see it, which sucked, but we j- just knowing it happened was enough for us. Yeah. I told my friend, I said, I said, I hope that he opens it in his car because that's the worst. Because that's shit hard to get out. You're never getting it out of your car. And it's a bunch of, and it's a bunch of dicks. Bunch of penises. It's a little, it's confetti dicks. (laughs) I love it. So if anybody ever needs some good ideas of how to get back at your ex without, you know, anything illegal or, or or to me, I'm pretty good at it. I'm pretty good at it. And at the off chance that he's listening. You still have some power tools, motherfucker. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you do. And also, <laughs> you're just a horrible person and eat one of those glitter dicks and die. There you go. Eat a bag of dicks. Oh. A-